We're privileged to introduce a voice that inspires thousands daily across various platforms, a beacon of faith and a bridge of connection for Catholics around the world, Katie Prejean McGrady. A devoted wife, mother, and an acclaimed author whose words have resonated with so many. She is a sought-after international speaker, a consultant for the USCCB Working Group on Youth and Young Adult Ministry, and the dynamic voice behind popular podcasts, Ave Explores, and Like a Mother. Regularly contributing to Blessed Is She, Our Sunday Visitor, Alatea, and the Grotto Network, she's made a mark in Catholic literature. A respected commentator on CNN, she brings Catholic perspectives to global issues. You may know her from the Katie McGrady Show, her daily radio program on Sirius XM's The Catholic Channel, where she talks about pop culture, current events, and Catholic news. She stands at the forefront of youth and young adult ministry as a consultant for the USCC be demonstrating her commitment to guiding future generations. Please join us in welcoming Katie Prejean McGrady. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. I see folks have slept in today, which is what I wanted to do. I'll sleep on the plane later. How is everyone? We're good. Yeah. I um I went to bed early last night because my kids aren't here, so I can actually get some sleep, which is kind of nice. And then my poor husband texted me this morning and said, yeah, they were up at five, and I was not. But the text message woke me up, so that was fun. I, um, I always come to these things, and I, I think to myself, you know, the second talk on the second day that you have to give, it's, it's usually the one where it's like the devoted folks are still showing up to things on time. The rest of the folks are checking out of their hotel right now. Uh, and then the other folks are like, ah, we'll get there by lunchtime if they come back at all. It really has been a joy to be here in Wichita, though, not just because I got to visit the tomb of Father Capon, Capon. I, I feel like if I'm saying it, Capon, then you all know I'm not from here. You already knew that. I was told the locals say Capon. Anytime I get to go somewhere, though, I'm reminded of the fact that travel solo, which is really quite easy because it's just me in a suitcase and I can walk through the airport relatively quickly, it's vastly different to travel with kids. Who brought their children this weekend? Anybody brought their children? Who left their children somewhere and said, I'll see you in a couple days? Yeah. I, um, my husband and I, my husband's from Scranton, Pennsylvania. Yes, like the office. Uh, and I'm obviously from Lake Charles, Louisiana, and I had no desire whatsoever to move to Scranton, Pennsylvania. So he moved to Louisiana in July of 2015. We got engaged in October Married the following June, pregnant by December. That first child was born August the 24th, 2017. And we made the commitment that we would make one trip up to Pennsylvania minimum a year. And there's a couple of ways to get to Pennsylvania from Louisiana. You can fly. And I don't like to subject people to tiny children on planes. They have every right to be there. It's just I don't want to be there with my children on the plane. So we road trip, we've bought the minivan, we take the 24 hour drive, we stop in Knoxville, Tennessee, and our kids have become pretty decent travelers. Mostly because I just hand them a tablet loaded with Bluey episodes and say, don't bother me until you need to go to the bathroom. But for the most part, they're pretty good travelers. And we've kind of got it down to this routine of, okay, we stop at the state rest stops, we find the Chick-fil-A's that still have a play place that's open. Like we kind of know our route on this road trip that we've made five or six times now. Our godson is in St. Louis, Missouri, so we know the route for St. Louis, Missouri. I'm gonna map out a route to Wichita so I can come back here with my kids someday. Well, a couple summers ago, I say that a couple summers ago, I think it was last summer, 
which feels like two summers ago because the summer's already over as far as I'm concerned because my kids start school next week. But last summer, so summer of 2022, we woke up one morning in Knoxville, Tennessee. It was nice and cool outside. We get in the car. We're like 20 minutes on the road. And Rose at the time, who was about to turn five, announces that she has to go to the bathroom. And like you have to gauge in your children, like how badly does this bathroom trip need to happen? Like, can you hold it? Are you just trying to get out of the seat because you're annoyed with being buckled in, even though we've only just started the drive? But she kept saying, like, I really have to go potty, Mom. I really have to go potty. Fine. So we pull off at the first exit that's coming up. We hop out of the car. I run inside. Tommy takes us an opportunity to top off the gas tank anyway. So this is going to work out in our favor. And we walk in, and the guy behind the counter, he looks at us, and he could tell. This is a frantic mom trying to find a potty for her child. And he went, bathroom's closed. And I just turned to him, and, and sometimes your mama bear comes out. And I was like, is it really? And he goes, uh, women's bathroom is closed. And I said, that's fine. Is there a men's toilet that we can use? And he just kind of looks at me and was like, I'm not trying to be funny. I just, my kid needs to pee. And so he we went, um, yeah, it's a single stall. I guess that's fine. So we go into the single stall male restroom right across from the women's restroom, which did have an out-of-order sign on it. I guess you just assumed all the ladies were just going to hold it as they came to this gas station that day. It's going to lose quite a bit of business as far as I was concerned. And we walk into the men's restroom, and I mean, it's a, it's a bathroom. There's nothing fancy going on. It's just a toilet and a urinal on the wall, which my four-year-old had never seen in her life. She looks at the urinal. You didn't think you were going to get a urinal story at 8.30 in the morning, did you? She looks at the urinal. She looks at the potty. She looks at me, and Rose has a great vocabulary. She, she, she listens really well. She knows <laughs> how to say certain things, and... She says, Mom, what's that? And I said, oh, it's, it's a potty for boys. And she looked at me, and she's a smart kid, and she went, how? And she, like, kind of backed up to it, and I was like, no, no, don't sit on it. Don't sit on it. No. I said, we're just going to use the regular potty. And so she uses the bathroom real quick. We, like, I germex her whole body, <laughs> spray her down with Lysol. We get out, we go back to the van, we buckle everybody back in, everyone's situated, tablets are on, I'm hoping maybe I can just scroll Twitter mindlessly for the next couple hours. Five minutes into the drive, I hear her pipe up in the back seat, Mom, what was that wall toilet called again? I said, ah, and Tommy looks at me and I went, we had to use the boys' bathroom. And he went, why? I said, I don't know. He said the girls' restroom was out of order and she had to pee. And he went, so you took her to the boys' restroom? She's like, what would you have me do? Get back in the van and drive two miles down the road to the next Conoco? Like, yes, we had to pee. I made an executive decision. And now my child is confused because she's asking why are there wall toilets for boys but not for girls? Not a conversation I was prepared to have on this road trip. And I said, well, that's just how boys go to the bathroom. We're not going to talk about that today. But why? I mean, she was legitimately curious. She doesn't have a baby brother, so I didn't exactly know how to tackle this particular moment. And she said, well, boys and girls are just different. And I figured that might satisfy her. It did not. She said, well, how are they different? And I'm really not about to go into this. She said, it's just boys and girls are different, and as you get older, we'll talk about it. That seems to satisfy her, right? Mom's just pushing it down the line. I'll go read some of Dr. Ray's books to figure out how to have the birds and the bees talk eventually. She's only four. About a half hour goes past, and she pipes up in the backseat again. She went, well, what, what makes boys and girls so different? 
And I, she knows that I'm not going to answer this question. And she went, I'm not talking about the potty stuff. I went, okay, well, what are you talking about? And she went, what makes a girl a girl and a boy a boy? And hand to God, my child is asking this deep philosophical question in the back of our minivan on the second day of this road trip to Scranton, Pennsylvania. I'm a professional communicator, and I'm stumped. I have no idea how I'm going to answer this from the front seat, explaining to my child what makes a boy a boy and what makes a girl a girl. And again, I spent five years in a freshman theology classroom trying to teach these things to 14-year-olds. I have a straight ticket out of purgatory, as far as I'm concerned. I talk on the radio every single day about Jesus, and somehow this four-year-old's question about biology and gender has stumped me. We're in for it, right? I have no idea what the world is going to bring, what life will look like when she's a teenager, but I'm praying every day for patience and humility. But it really did, I thought about it for quite a while, right? What does make a boy a boy and a girl a girl besides the mechanics of going to the bathroom with a toilet on the wall and a toilet on the ground? What's the difference between a little boy who wants to play with trucks and a little girl who, despite my best efforts, wants to play with Barbies? What is the difference between a dad who maybe sometimes doesn't exactly know how to approach newborns and a mom who knows that she was made for this? What's the difference? And we could sit here and talk about the, the writings and the statistics and what's happening in our culture. We could sit here and, and go through every page of theology of the body, one of the greatest gifts our church has ever received. We could talk about the struggles that we have to answer those sometimes very fundamental questions with our children. But I think at the end of the day, the way that we best answer what makes a boy and what makes a girl is by actually thinking about our own identity as men and women first and using that as the launch pad to explain to our children that this is who we are, made in God's image and likeness, men and women created distinctly and uniquely and complementary, men and women who sometimes try to take each other's roles in society because that's what we've been convinced we need to do, men and women who sometimes feel very out of sorts in a world that tells us, well, this is success, and this is authentic femininity, and this is authentic masculinity, but we don't use the word authentic masculinity, we just use the word toxic masculinity because that, that makes everybody feel better. And rather than even define what that might look like, toxic masculinity or toxic femininity, we just kind of gloss over it and say, well, be whatever you want to be. Has anybody seen the Barbie movie? I'm not going to spoil it for you. But a lot of people were like, oh my gosh, this is a against motherhood. And I'm just here to tell you that I've seen it twice now. And every single time I've walked out of it, more proud of being a mom and aware of the fact that the whole movie is this very subtle commentary about how feminism has let us all down. So if you think you shouldn't go see the movie, just give it a chance. Go read a couple of reviews online. It, it's lacking in a lot of ways, but it actually articulates this idea that plastic, I can do anything I want, Barbie, is unhappy and enters into the real world looking for some sort of authentic fulfillment and finds it in a gynecologist's office of all places. I think what's really fascinating is that our world is just like I was at the front seat of that van. And when we ask this question, what makes a boy and what makes a girl? What is an authentic man who stepped into his role in society? What is an authentic woman who recognizes what she's capable of? We, we don't know how to answer that question, and so we just avoid it. And I think quite honestly, if we want to look at one another, we want to look at our children, 
look at our enemies, look at people who disagree with us and would do us harm, and people who are just completely indifferent to the Christian experience and experiment. If we want to look at them and actually answer the question that's deep within their hearts, what does make a boy a boy and a girl a girl? What does make a man an authentic man and a woman an authentic woman? Authentic, of course, being real, being most herself, living according to the plan that God has for his or her life. But we have to understand that what makes an authentic woman and what makes an authentic man is an awareness of our sonship and our daughterhood, our sisterhood and our brotherhood, and who we are as mothers and fathers in the world. And until we can come to an awareness of who we are as children of God, who we are in community with one another, and who we are as men and women sent out into the world to care, then we're not going to be able to answer that question to our kids in the back seat or to the people that we engage in cultural discussions with. We're not going to be the witnesses we need to be in this world. Let's start with that first one, sonship and daughterhood. What does it mean to be a son? What does it mean to be a daughter? And we think back to our own parents. And as, as good as our parents might have been, they were also probably lacking in some ways. I know that as good as a mom as I want to be, I'm sometimes very much lacking in my motherhood and caring for my children. So sometimes when we think of our sonship, we think of our daughterhood, we think of it in very truncated terms because we had perhaps not the greatest of parents. Or they tried really hard, and we've forgiven them for a lot, but we recognize their missteps, and we just assume, well, that's how God is a father to me. My dad made mistakes. My mom made mistakes. So God clearly makes mistakes. I wasn't a beloved son. I wasn't a beloved daughter in my family. And so God clearly holds me at arm's length. Or we had amazing parents who did everything right. We, I feel like the greatest compliment adult children can give their parents is by going back to their house and like continuing to hang out with them. I think my mom thinks I don't have friends because I'm always just like, can we come over for dinner? Like, I just want to hang out at your house. You have a very nice house, but I also just like being around them. And so sometimes we think of God only in terms of a worldly parenthood, of a worldly fatherhood, and we can't fathom the idea that we are chosen. See, resting in our sonship and our daughtership is a recognition of our choice, of God's choice for us. And then we respond to that choice that God has made for us with a choice to love him. I was reading recently about, this is going to sound very strange, but ancient Roman rules of adoption. It's fascinating Saturday evening reading. And see, in ancient Rome, like the earliest days of the pro-life Christian movement was when a, when a Roman family would have a child, if the child had any sort of, of deformity or handicap or struggle, a Roman family was allowed up to two years to get rid of the baby and would quite literally throw the child over the wall. And the earliest days of the pro-life movement were Christians rescuing these abandoned children. Well, there was also these rules within Roman law that you could get rid of your child for up to two years if they were a burden to you, but you could also adopt children, whether they had a, a handicap or not. But if you adopted a child, you were not allowed to throw them over the wall if something was wrong. See, if you actively chose to adopt a child for whatever reason you needed an heir and you had not yet had a son, you were infertile and you could not have children of your own, if you actively chose to adopt a child, you did not have the same right, as misguided as it was, 
to toss that child over the wall. You'd adopted the child, therefore you'd chosen the child, therefore you had to keep the child. In fact, in Roman law, an adopted child seemed to have more rights than a biologically born child, which is wild, right? Because the act of choice tethered a person to a family. And so when St. Paul talks about us as being adopted sons and daughters, sometimes we think of that as like, well, I'd rather be a created son or daughter. But we actually have more of a tether to God as his adopted sons and daughters than, than anything else in society, than anything else in creation other than, of course, God the Son. That we have a unique familial bond with the creator of the universe and that that wasn't some accidental, oh, well, I'm bored. Let's see what happens when I make creatures in my image and likeness but as an act of choice to bring us into his beloved family. And in fact, when we are baptized, we are given an entirely new identity, that we are completely different as a result of water poured over our foreheads and words said, hopefully with vigor and passion, that we are baptized into this family and never, never the same. We are always different as a result. And when we live in our sonship, when we live in our daughterhood, when we recognize that we are chosen by God, that gives us an awareness of the people around us. We are confident in our belovedness. And women, we talk about this all the time, that we're beloved by God. It's like the theme of every women's conference I've ever spoken at, understanding that you are seen and known and loved, that you are chosen by God. But, but men, men don't sit long enough with their belovedness because it makes them a little uncomfortable. No guy wants to necessarily be gazed at in the eyes and told, man, you're beautiful. Like, that, that might make you squirmy. Sometimes guys struggle with this awareness of, I'm beloved, because they think of themselves as the one that's doing the loving, and that's good. I want men in this world who love others fiercely and with strength. But I really don't think that love can come from a place that's just manufactured. That love has to come from a place of awareness of your own belovedness that a son of the Father stands in the light and knows that God sees him with joy and with pride and delights in him. And that men and women who know that God delights in them and has chosen them as his own, those are men and women, those are sons and daughters, able to step into a world that is quite orphaned, a world that does not know that it belongs to God, not in a possessive way, but in a chosen way. I joked yesterday um, at, the, at the panel, my sister is a canon lawyer. She's been a canon lawyer for three years, and she's finishing her doctoral dissertation in canon law. She's writing about the juridical process in the church. It's very nerdy. I understand like less than a tenth of what she's writing about. She'll do something incredible in the life of the church someday with all of these letters behind her name. And I asked her like jokingly not long ago, because she's a canon lawyer, and she'll talk about this stuff until the cows come home. I said, Laura, what's your favorite canon? You know, like your favorite law within the church? Because there's a lot of them, and every canon lawyer has a favorite. And I was expecting something cool, like the canon concerning the governing of, like, a parish council. That seems really fascinating. Or, like, the canon concerning the, the, the requirements of confession, right? Like, there are canons requiring the amount of time that a priest hears confession, or like the canon about how much vacation a bishop is allowed to take, right? And she looked at me and she said, oh, my favorite canon is the one about baptismal records. And I looked at her and I went, what? 
Baptismal record, like paperwork? Your favorite law in the church is about paperwork? And she said, yeah, canon, I think it's 873 or 874. I'm not the canon lawyer, so don't quote me, but it's in the 870s. And there's a, a canon, a very specific rule within the governance of the church that says that when a person is baptized, the church, the pastor, the priest, whoever does the baptism, must make swift documentation of the baptism, must write down the date and the place of the baptism, and that that record must remain on file forever. Once you're baptized, water poured over your head, you are chosen as God's beloved son and daughter. You are redeemed of original sin. The church is obligated by law to record that because you are never the same again. And we need a document saying that so that everybody else knows. And how powerful to think that the church cares so much about that moment of our salvation that we write it down, we put it on paper, and we lock it in a file box that you actually have a right to. So I've annoyed every parish secretary in the world by telling you, call up your parish and ask to see your baptismal certificate because that is a record that the church cares about having, showing your sonship, showing that you are a daughter of the king. Sons and daughters who know they are beloved are able to love one another better. I'm convinced that the most miserable people on earth, and I meet a lot of them because I spend a lot of time in airports, the most miserable people on earth are people who don't know that they are loved, and so therefore they don't love other people well. Are people who think that we are all in competition with one another, whether for God's love or influence, even within our parish communities, or some sort of status and stature in the world, but sons and daughters are able to see one another as brothers and sisters and live not in competition, not in an attempt to shove others down, but in communion, in relationship, in fellowship. That sons and daughters recognizing their brothers and their sisters are able to step into the world and in a way that only they can love other people uniquely. Brotherhood and sisterhood is camaraderie. Brotherhood and sisterhood is, is a, a support of the people in your life, the ones you know and the ones you don't know, and treating them as if they too are made in God's image and likeness and therefore worthy not just of your respect, but of your attention and your care. That brothers and sisters stepping into the world who know that they are sons and daughters first don't look to gain something from other people. You don't look at another person and see what can I get out of them but seek to just simply stand in the presence of another unrepeatable soul and admire God's handiwork. Delight in who they are. Now that looks different. Sisterhood, women like to get together, and the stereotypes are often true, where we will share stories with one another, and we will gab and occasionally gossip, which is not good for us where women will sit together in sisterhood and there's like an instant familiarity, the conversation can just pick back up where it left off. And then brotherhood, which is sometimes a little more silent, but still supportive. My husband plays pickleball every Thursday morning at 5 a.m. with a group of guys. I feel like pickleball is gonna solve all male loneliness in society. And he goes with these guys and he'll come back at like 6.30 in the morning and I'm making breakfast for the kids and getting everybody ready for school. And I'll say, how was the game? And he'll be like, good. What'd you guys talk about? Not much. 
is everything okay with everybody? Yeah. And I can't get anything out of him. <laughs> but I know that that was good time with his brothers. Good time with these men popping a waffle ball. Wiffle ball? Is it a wiffle ball? I've never played it. I, I feel like if you're going to play pickleball, you must be very confident in your masculinity because it's a silly game. <laughs> Right, it's like ping pong paddles and wiffle balls on a, on a tennis court, but they, they have a blast with it. He wears his little tube socks, he pulls them up high. I'm like, you're still 35, man. Like, you don't have to jump into 60 just yet. But, but there's, there's a brotherhood component, right? There's a desire to just simply be together. And I'm not trying to reduce masculine friendship to grunts and beer, but I am saying that the simplicity that we can find in the relationships that we have, there's a beauty in that. That where women sometimes talk too much and men don't talk enough, perhaps there's a balance that can be found. And if I know that I'm beloved, I can then love other people better. Well, then that leads to perhaps the most unique thing that I think especially Christians can give to the world. And that is our motherhood and our fatherhood. And I don't just mean biologically having a lot of children. Although, praise be to God that people are open to that, especially in the Catholic world, right? Repopulate the earth reclaim the culture. But, but there's something to be said for recognizing that if I'm loved by God and I'm in community with the people around me in a healthy way, then I can step into the world, a world that is orphaned, a world that is lonely, a world that is hurting, a world that does not know truth, and I can serve and love that world. Men as tender and strong fathers and women as compassionate, caring mothers. And that there's a gift in recognizing the strength that a man, that a father can bring into the world and the care that a mother can bring into the world. And, and mothering and fathering people, not just that we've adopted or given birth to, but mothering and fathering people that we encounter who are looking for leadership, who are looking for guidance, who are looking for a witness to living for something greater than just ourselves. When I, I give a, a talk to young women at youth conferences, and I talk about motherhood, and that's usually when the girls start to shut down. They're 15 years old, right? What, what are they going to learn about motherhood at 15 or 16 years old, other than if we decide to teach them NFP? Like, what, what are we going to talk about? And motherhood is something that is innate to the feminine heart. I see it in my five-year-old, who at her birthday party last year, when her friends came over, her biggest concern was that everybody had something to drink. Like literally walking up to her friends and saying, can I get you something to drink? She wanted to be a hospitable host, mothering her own friends. That fatherhood is this desire to, to lead and to serve. That even in little boys who rally together on the playground, that a, a natural leader kind of rises to the top of the group, and then everybody else looks to that kid to say, well, what are we doing next? That motherhood and fatherhood is stepping into the world knowing that our awareness of who we are as beloved by God and who we are in communion with one another means that our leadership, our kindness, our love in the world is not an oppressive, controlling power, but is a loving, gentle guidance. That men and women who see their motherhood and fatherhood not just as contained to the children that I raise, but as a witness to the world of the compassion that I can give, of the strength that I can guide with, well, then that's a culture that all of a sudden feels a little less alone. That's a culture that supports, 
That's a culture that doesn't look for satisfaction in empty ways like entertainment or in, in social activities, but is a world that recognizes these people who are giving witness to something greater than themselves, what is it about them that's different? And people are drawn to that. People see that and are moved by that. People ask questions about that. And even if they don't ask questions about it, they see it from afar and it sticks in their mind. It changes them in some ways. A few weeks ago, I took my family to a, a small theme park outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania called Idlewild. If you're ever in the Pittsburgh area, highly recommend. I was a big Mr. Rogers Neighborhood fan when I was a kid, so my children have watched Daniel Tiger. So you can take the trolley and ride into Daniel Tiger's neighborhood. And they have like a Daniel Tiger show, and they have this thing called Storybook Forest, where you can like walk through Mother Goose's book house and meet all these different fairy tale characters. It was perfect. We went on my birthday. We went for the day. I'd been at a conference the week before. My family had driven over to, to spend time with me. We went to this theme park. We came back to the hotel. We woke up the next morning. It was Tuesday. We were all exhausted from this theme park day. And we walked into the hotel lobby, this Best Western in Steubenville, Ohio, right across the street from Franciscan's campus. And we sit down to have breakfast. And my kids, who are super tapped out from the day before and a little sunburned and like asking, what are we going to do today, even though mom and dad just kind of want to veg for a little bit because we're worn out and stuck in these hotel rooms. They're asking for breakfast. So I go and I get their pancakes made. My husband's pouring coffee. And we're sitting there, and we're just being like a normal family. In fact, I, I would argue that I kind of wanted nobody to be paying attention to us or watching us in that moment because I was on my last nerve from the day before, exhausted. My kids were overtired, and I had a talk that I had to give that night that I needed to make sure I was prepped for. And we're sitting there having our breakfast. The kids are being their normal, busybody, loud selves. My husband is like Tigger from the Hundred Acre Woods. He's very extroverted, and my kids have definitely gotten that personality. So they're, they're being their jovial, bouncy selves, and I'm just chugging coffee like it's my job to try to wake up all the way. And out of the corner of my eye, I see a guy sitting there, and he was looking at us. And like mama bear mode kind of kicked in. Like, why is this guy staring at us across this Best Western lobby? And I didn't like move my chair or anything, but I just kind of kept an eye on him, you know, like making sure he wasn't doing anything weird or wasn't pulling his phone camera out to take a photo of us or just, you know, like keeping an eye on the guy. Husbands and wives can have whole conversations by just looking at each other. So I like intently stare at my husband and kind of like indicate that this guy is over there looking at us. And so he kind of looks over. He gets up at one point, walks that direction to refill his coffee and comes back over. And he was like, he's just sitting there. Like, I think he's just kind of like staring off into the distance. He's not he's not really watching us. OK, maybe I'm just being prideful, thinking this guy is watching my beautiful young family in the Best Western Lobby in Steubenville, Ohio. A few more minutes pass by. My kids are like eating pancakes again and again and again. I feel like we're going to break the machine. We're making so many pancakes. And we're starting to kind of clean up the table, and I'm packing up our stuff, and this guy walks over to the table. And he pulls a chair up, and he sits down. I was like, you were not invited to sit with us. And he sits down, and he looks at us, and he went, you don't know me. And my husband went, yeah, we don't. And he went, well, I'm at this conference. He was at the Bosco conference. And I guess I probably could have reasonably assumed most people at this hotel were there for this youth minister's conference across the street. And he said, I I'm at this conference, and I just have to say, he didn't know I was speaking at the conference. He just thought we were there, like, I guess, vacationing in Steubenville, like people do that. 
Um, and he said, I just have to say, it's so nice to see a young family at breakfast say grace before their meal. And I'm thinking to myself, did we say grace before our meal? Like, I don't recall that. And I, and I think you can kind of see it on my face. And he went, your kids blessed the meal while you were making pancakes for them. And I thought to myself, you know, when I'm canonized someday, this is what they're going to document as the moment of my children's holiness. <laughs> it's very presumptive of me. I don't think I'll be canonized. I hope I get there, but I don't think there'll be holy cards. But if there are, this will be the moment when my kids bless their pancakes while mom was making more of them on the other side of the room. And this guy noticed it and came over and affirmed us. And I immediately went from annoyance at this weird guy staring at us across the lobby and sitting down with us to this strange feeling of, oh my gosh, we're not alone. See, I think that's what makes authentic masculinity and femininity from a Christian perspective, from the love of God, so hard in our society today. Because it feels like we're swimming against the current. It feels like we're alone in it. It feels like I'm trying to raise my kids with morals. I'm trying to raise my kids to say in the South, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and yes, sir, and no, sir, and be polite. I'm trying to teach my children right from wrong, and I turn on the TV, and we go watch a show on Netflix, and it introduces them to things that I was not anticipating. And so now we got to put that one on the do not watch list. Or they go to school, a good Catholic school, and they still come home, and they've learned bad words on the playground because some older kid said it to a younger sibling, and it made its way into the kindergarten lexicon. And now we have to talk about why, no, we don't say F it when we're mad, which was not a conversation I thought I'd have to have at Catholic school. Or we sit there as husband and wife, open to life, and the rest of the world criticizes us for it. Now, we've been trying to have number three for a while now, unsuccessfully. And I made a comment to a friend of mine who's not Catholic, like, yeah, if you could just say a prayer for us, we'd really love more children. We, we don't know that our family is done just yet. And she said, well, you've got two. Isn't that enough? And I said, I mean, if that's what God gives us, yes, that's plenty. But shouldn't we be celebrated for wanting to have more? Or the families that do have more than the standard American 2.5 children walking through a grocery store and people look at them and go, oh, you've got your hands full. It feels sometimes like what we're living in this culture is countercultural. But here's the thing. We can reclaim the culture, one, strength in numbers, but two, by just being that authentic witness that a broken world so desperately needs. By showcasing to other people that we're not just living for ourselves. We're not just looking to expand our bank accounts. We're not just looking to put away for retirement. We're not just looking to have the biggest house and the fanciest car and the best job. But we're looking for eternal salvation. And that everything in our lives, authentic men and authentic women, redirect themselves to recognizing that that is what I should be in pursuit of. That is what I am ultimately looking and longing for. I was talking to Father McManus after the, after the speaker panel. We were making our way over to dinner, and we were, we were chatting about the fact that he's from Alabama and I'm from Louisiana, and we've both hidden our accents really well. Not because we're not proud of our Southern heritage, but sometimes people look at us like we're a, a little dumb because of our, our Southern twangs. And so I've, I've learned to hide mine. I married a Yankee. I lived with a bunch of Yankees in college. So I've learned to just kind of put it away. My draw can come out when I need it to. And, and sometimes we, we just we struggle with that, like trying to hide it. And I couldn't help but think to myself, I think that's what we do as men and women 
who claim Jesus Christ as our, our Lord and Savior. I think that's what we do as Catholics. We try to hide it. Like a Southerner sometimes tries to hide their drawl because we just assume that everybody's going to automatically think we're dumb. They're automatically going to think we're holding on to something old. They're automatically going to think we're just scared of the modern world. Rather than recognizing, I'm not scared of the modern world. I just think the modern world is killing itself. It's not that I'm concerned about the fact that the culture is falling apart. It's that I recognize that that emptiness that they think is giving them satisfaction is ultimately going to destroy them. And I'd, I'd rather not be destroyed. I'm seeking life. And what does Jesus Christ call us to? Life in abundance. Jesus Christ doesn't invite us to do the Christian life. He doesn't invite us into the Christian project a little bit. He doesn't say to us, well, you know, I'll take like 98% of you. And the other 2% of your life and your attention and your energy, you can go give that to anything else in society and anything else in the world. I'll just get 98% of you. If a spouse said that to their, their spouse, oh, you get 98% of me, but 2% of the time I get to go date and hang out with other people and live this whole other life apart from you, my spouse, I hope your spouse would question that. I hope your spouse would say, no, like I want all of you and you get all of me. We should treat the Lord with that same covenantal attitude. And that transforms us into men and women who are able to step into the world and show I'm living for something more. Now, an aside to all of this, that if we understand our daughterhood and our sonship, if we understand who we are as brothers and sisters, if we understand who we are as mothers and fathers able to love a broken and hurt world, well, how do I become aware of those identities as daughter, sister, mother, as son, brother, and father? And the only way and I love when Father Spitzer talks about this because it just makes me so happy to know that he still so deeply believes this and has taught this from the beginning of his career. If we are not people of prayer, if we are not people who actually spend time with our Lord, then all of it's for naught. You could have that very, on the outside looking in, lovely Catholic family, that external devotion that, oh yeah, they look like a good Catholic group of people. And internally, if you have not spent time actually talking to Jesus, it's a sham. You might look nice on the outside. Your kids might sit still. You might have the chapel veils. You might be singing as loud as you possibly can in church. Good for you. But if you haven't actually talked to Jesus and spent time listening to him, then your Christianity, your Catholicism, it's just a nice shiny poster hung on the wall, and you pull it off, and there's nothing behind it. There's no depth. Relationship with Jesus reveals to us our identity. And relationship with Jesus is only found when we pray, when we quiet ourselves and we talk to the Lord, when we make time to read sacred scripture and our kids find us reading the Bible. When we carry a rosary on our pocket, not just as a, a nice little paperweight that makes us feel more Catholic, but something that we pull out in a moment of struggle and trial. That the devotional practices that we try to teach our kids are not just some ornamentation to our Catholic life that we can Instagram, but is the root of everything we do as a family. And authentic mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, authentic men and women who live their authentic masculinity 
and femininity, the only way it's not toxic, as the world would say, is because we look to something bigger than ourselves. And the only way we look to something bigger than ourselves is by talking to Jesus Christ. And prayer, I know, it's hard. What do I say? When do I have time for it? What is it supposed to look like? What if I don't hear anything back? Prayer is the most fundamental component of who we are as believers. Prayer is the lifeblood, the lifeline of everything that we do. And as moms and dads, especially with young families, as people who are entering into early retirement and are just excited to relax for the first time in years, as people who are trying to figure out where they fit in this world that seems to be rejecting us again and again and again, what does it look like to take time to sit at the feet of Jesus? And what often happens is we assume, oh, well, I, I can serve the church, and, and that will be how I get close to Jesus. I'll volunteer. I'll show up and help with this ministry. I'll run this Bible study. We turn ourselves into Martha, running around serving. And I love Martha. She's my favorite person in sacred scripture. Because God loved Martha running around serving Jesus because obviously Jesus has come over for dinner. You're going to set out a spread. You're not going to let Jesus be hungry. But here's Martha running around doing all this stuff. And she looks over and she sees her sister Mary, lazy Mary, sitting there at the feet of Jesus, minding her own business, and she gets annoyed. She gets bothered. And it says in the scriptures that she's burdened, like literally weighed down with the serving. She feels alone. She feels unseen. She doesn't know who she is. Martha is far from a daughter or a sister or a mother in this moment. She feels like she's just a servant. And she goes up to Jesus and kind of sassy, she looks at Jesus and she goes, do you care that my sister's not helping me? Do you even care that she's not doing anything for me? That she's not even helping with the dishes or with the food or with the snacks? Do you even care? And Jesus looks at her and seeing her in her burden, seeing her in her struggle, seeing her in her hurt, he says her name. And he says her name twice. And we know that scripturally, anytime Jesus says somebody's name, it's important. We should pay attention. He changes people's names. Simon becomes Peter, Saul will become Paul. He doesn't change Martha's name. Martha is exactly who she should be. She just needs to see Jesus Christ in that. He goes, Martha, Martha, calls her to attention. Look at me. Pay attention to me. Martha, Martha, you were anxious and worried about many things. But there's need of only one thing. Your sister Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. He doesn't look at Martha and say, I need a refill. He doesn't look at Martha and say, settle down. He doesn't look at Martha and say, suck it up. He looks at Martha and he names her worry. You're anxious and worried. And he invites her to sit down. Authentic men and women in our culture and in our society are men and women who sit down and listen to Jesus. And that then sends them out to be able to love the world broken and hurting and faithless. Because what's the follow-up to Martha's story? When her brother Lazarus is dead in a tomb and Jesus shows up, Martha walks up to him and with faith and confidence says, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. But I know that you can still do something about it. Her faith sends her to the face of Jesus Christ again. And her brother is raised from the dead, brought back to life. 
Authentic men and women, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, are first and foremost people who sit at the feet of Jesus and allow him to love them so they can step out into the world and proclaim the truth in faith. And then things happen as a result of that. It's been a real joy to be with you guys. I, um, I'll be at my booth for about 30, 40 minutes until I have to go to the airport uh, so I can get home for my sister's birthday dinner tonight. Um, I just wanted to tell you about two resources. I mentioned them yesterday. Uh, I, the National Eucharistic Revival is going on right now. You can go to eucharisticrevival.org. I also should have mentioned um, I have a couple of podcasts that are totally free, so you can listen to me on SiriusXM 129. If you don't want to pay the full price for SiriusXM, you can just chat with them and tell them I don't want to pay full price, and they'll knock the price down. As an employee of SiriusXM, I have to do that too. So just tell them you don't want to pay full price. They'll give you a nice little discount. We're there every afternoon from 1 to 3 Central. But my, my three podcasts, one is on Hallow, Family Mass Prep. That's for families getting ready for Mass on Sunday to talk about the readings. Like a Mother, that's a podcast specifically for Catholic moms, where we talk about everything from the balance of work and home life. We recently had an episode on homeschooling and homesteading. We have an episode coming out tomorrow uh, from a published author who's written in the secular space about how she balances her creative pursuits with, with raising her children. So that's Like a Mother. And then the other podcast, and I think there's a lot of Ave Explores listeners in Wichita, because a lot of people have come up and told me they listen to this show. It's called Ave Explores. We have 20 seasons, over 150 episodes are out, talking about Catholic faith and life. We've got a, a series on Catholic family life, a series on the saints. We just wrapped up a series on the Eucharist. There are about 10 episodes each season. We have interviews with experts, so it's not just me blabbing. It's me talking to people far smarter than I am. So you can find all of that online. If you just go to my website, katieprejeanmcgrady.com, you can find links to all of that stuff there. It's been great to be in Wichita. I hope to be back someday. Thank you all for listening and for being here this morning.